All right, let's get started. We've got a lot of ground to cover. I don't really know how far into this I'm going to get today. Um, I was explaining this to Anouk that I said, you know, when I taught this before, uh, it was in a completely different environment, different variables. Um, I was doing it through translation. So I don't have to do that here. Uh, so that's good. Um, but also there was, uh, these were students that had uh, a couple of other courses in church history leading up to this. And so there was some knowledge I could assume um, that I can't assume here. And so there's, there's a lot of variables here. So um, we're going to just go as far as we can go today. Um, I did not provide a handout. Uh, one of the things I was, I was debating about that, a couple reasons. One, I kind of just want you to sit back and just, and just take in the stories and take in the timelines and things like that. Um, I will provide my notes and PowerPoints and things to anyone who wants them, so you can have all that. But, uh, and feel free to take notes. I mean, I, I'm not telling you not to take notes, but I thought if, if I just gave a handout that there might be uh, a little bit more um, uh, pressure to get through that particular material or something like that. So that's the reason why I chose not to do that for this, this class. So let's pray and uh, ask God's blessing and then we'll begin. Father, we are incredibly grateful that we have the opportunity to study, to learn, and to see how you have acted and how you have blessed and how you helped people that went on before us. And I pray that we would treat uh, this time with respect in terms of we are going to be looking at people's lives whom you love who you had a special plan for. And I pray that we would see them for all the good and we see and we learn from the faults of them as well. But Lord, I pray that this time together would, would most importantly honor you. I pray that we'd come back to how whatever we learn from history, uh, how it can affect us today and it can uh, make us better servants of yours. And so this is what we desire, this is what we want. And so we pray that you would receive all glory and honor for our time uh, together today. For it's in Christ's name we do pray, amen. So one of the things I want to do is I just want to go through a couple reasons, or a few reasons of why studying church history is important. Um, without understanding church history, Christian theology is most, more likely to become theoretical rather than practical. Because we can study theology, we can study uh, what the Bible says, but when, if we don't um, connect that to life events, then it just it tends to become theory rather than practical. And so for us to be able to look back and see how the truths of God's Word shaped and formed people from uh, many years ago and how we are standing on their shoulders, uh, that gives us then a way to make the Bible and theology much more practical to our lives as well. Another reason that I, I put down, and I just put three, is that the, uh, the study of church history provides a perspective on the church interaction with surrounding culture. One of the things that we, we're going to learn as we go through is that every culture that these men and these women that they were a part of, um, that culture affected them, and they affected that culture, their own culture. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I look around at our surrounding culture, and sometimes I get frustrated. 
And sometimes I get even, I'm prone to, uh, tempted to be in, in despair about kind of the direction that our culture is going. And then I look back and I see someone like Luther, I see someone like Zwingli or Calvin or Biza or uh, Farrell, and I see how the, these people, they stood against culture because they were firmly rooted in the Word of God. And that gives me encouragement for today. And so we can get some, inter, uh, some ideas of how um, the church historically has interacted with surrounding culture. And then lastly, uh, and there's many more reasons why we can study church history, but these are three I just wanted to share. Uh, church history provides a perspective on what is essential and what is not essential. Uh, this is a great debate that we find ourselves in all the time about what is the most important thing. And we're going to see, where, as we go through this study, we're going to see how they didn't always get that right. And they've started to major on some of the things that were not essential. And we're going to see how that plays out. And that should be a caution to us. Then as we're trying to figure out what we're going to dig in on and what we're going to spend our energy and our time on, it's going to be on the essentials and the non-essentials. But I want to show this picture as we begin this study. And, you know, when, when you look at this picture... Uh, does anyone ever, has anyone ever run track or anything before here? Okay, you ran track? Okay, okay, a few of you did, okay? All right, um, my philosophy of running is do it when chased, okay? Um, and so, um, you know, where's Michael? Michael just ran a marathon. Um, and so, but, but when I look at this picture, um, I see that this guy is obviously straining, he's running hard, he's giving everything he has for it. Uh, for the race. But of course, there's something in his hand, right? There's a baton in his hand. And when I look at this picture, I think a lot of times about uh, church history because you know, because the guy has a baton in his hand, he's not the only one running the race. Solo runners typically, as, as, as I understand running, they don't carry batons unless they got to pass it on. And maybe I'm wrong on that, but that's my understanding of it. And so this man is part of a team, and this man is running, and he has had that baton most likely passed to him, and he's going to pass it to someone else. And so when I look at church history, what I think about is I think that there's been many people who have gone before me, and they have run hard. And the baton that they have passed on to me and to my generation and to you, that baton is covered with sweat. And it is covered with blood and tears and it shows tremendous hard work that these men and these women, they ran hard before us. And so when I look at that and I think about church history, I think, okay, now the baton's in my hand. And it's in your hand. We've got to run hard. Because there's another generation that we're going to smack that baton into their hand. And it's going to carry the blood, sweat, and tears of Luther and Zwingli and Calvin and Farrell and Biza and all these other people that we're going to look at. But it's also going to carry your sweat. And your tears, your blood, don't drop the baton. So when I see a picture like this and I look back at church history, I think that I'm not the first person to carry this baton. I'm not the first person to suffer for Jesus. Or I'm not the first person with this message. And I'm not going to be the last person with it. I need to make sure that I fulfill my role in church history. And so that's what I encourage you to do. So when we look at these guys, and it's going to be kind of neat to see kind of some of the things. Don and I were talking a little about Luther and his insults, and we're going to get into that probably next week. And it's going to be uh, humorous at times. It's going to be interesting at times. But let's never lose fact, lose sight of the fact that there's a baton of the gospel 
that's being passed from generation to generation. And we are part of church history. So this is why we study it, is because we're a part of it. So with that encouragement, let's begin by talking about the Reformation. Um, and uh, so I'll just say now it's your turn to run the race. But uh, th- before we can really get into all of what happened during the Reformation, and that started, you know, a lot of historians put the year 1517 for that. Um, before we can get into that, we kind of got to figure out what caused the Reformation, okay? So what was it that made it so that Luther uh, nailed those uh, theses to the, the church door in Wittenberg and the world got turned upside down? I mean, what was going on in the world that that became necessary and became a reality, um, these things don't just happen in a vacuum. So I'm going to walk through a few of these uh, this morning just so we can have an understanding of what was happening uh, in the world at that time. First of all, the first reason that I'd share is that there was a lot of church crises in previous centuries. You know, uh, there was what's known in the Catholic place, in the Catholic theology, Catholic history, of what they refer to as the Babylonian captivity. Now, that's not the Babylonian capti- captivity that we read about in Daniel. Um, but what this is referring to is that in 1305, the Pope uh, Clement V, he was elected in 1305, and he was a Frenchman. Okay, and so now if you know anything about Catholicism, you know that the, the, the center of it was in Rome, of course, and, and, and most of the popes leading up to that time were Italian. And, um, and so when a Frenchman was elected a pope, this was a new thing, and this was difficult for a lot of Catholics. And what made it even harder is that the very first thing that he decided to do, that Clement V, the Frenchman, decided to do, is that he said, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to appoint... Uh, some cardinals, and they're all going to be French, and he appointed nine of them. So here we have a French pope that now appoints French cardinals, and everyone knew the handwriting was on the wall, that the French were going to control the Catholic Church now. And there was a revolt in that, and, 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 um, and they, they pushed hard against his leadership and things. And so what he did to escape the conflict, Clement made a decision to move his residency and the base of Catholicism, not in Rome. He moved it away from Rome, and he went down to France and into the, the city of Avignon in France. And so for the next seven popes, there would be French uh, popes, and they would rule from France rather than from Rome. Now, the reason why I bring this up is because the Catholic Church is in turmoil in this. I mean, there's a lot of chaos here. They, they wanted, a lot of people wanted it in Rome. They wanted to center in Rome. They definitely didn't want a Frenchman being the Pope, but yet he was elected. And so there was this chaos that was happening in the Catholic Church. That would be the Babylonian captivity. captivity. There's also a thing known as the Great Schism. There's actually a couple of these that are known. The main one was in 1054, and that was when the Holy Roman Empire and the Catholic Church split into East and West. And this is where we get... Um, the Greek Orthodox Church, and that's where the Greek Orthodox Church started in the West, and the, the Catholic Church uh, started in the East. And so we had Constantine, or Constantinople was the center of the West Church, and we had Rome as the center of the East Church. So that happened in 1054. And then a few couple hundred years later, in the 1300s, uh, we had a great confusion so from, of who the Pope was. So from 1378 to 1417, Three different men claimed to be the Pope at the same time, okay? And there was great debate here about who the Pope, who was the leader of the church at this time, and they were debating with each other. 
And so we have these three men who kept saying that, no, I'm the Pope, I'm the Pope, and everything's like that. So how do you think they dealt with that problem? Well, every Pope just decided to excommunicate the other two Popes. And so they just kept going round and round. I excommunicate you. No, I excommunicate you. And so there was just this chaos that was happening. And this was almost a great schism in the 1400s and late 1400s, early 1500s. And so as we know, in the 1600s, the Reformation's coming. So this is the groundwork. This is what's happening. There's lots of chaos here. I put it on the bottom of the end of the conciliatory movement. The conciliatory movement, I won't take a lot of time to get into that. Basically what that was is that was an idea that the authority in the Catholic Church should move away from the papacy and go into an ecumenical council. And so the council should have the highest amount of authority rather than the pope, and probably partly because of the whole different things with the three different popes and things like that. Once you get to the end of the 1400s, this movement loses its steam and goes away. And so now we have the Pope trying to regain some power. So there's lots of power. So, so one of the reasons why the Reformation happened was because there was lots of crisis in the Catholic Church leaving, leading up to this. Another reason is church corruption. Um, it became well known. And so these are some of the things that were, were there. Simony is the idea of when they were selling offices and selling uh, things. Uh, um, and so what they would do is that they would um, uh, sell the, the positions or they would sell the, the spiritual work uh, to uh, people the highest bidder. Uh, absenteeism is that people were... Uh, maybe they were a bishop or maybe they were a cardinal, whatever, that they ruled from afar. They, they didn't even really interact with the people that they were supposed to. It was more of a political position. Nepotism uh, was the idea of, of favoritism, of, of just giving offices to uh, who you wanted. And usually it had a political motive behind it. Um, uh, one, <laughs> one person uh, gave a, a bishop uh, uh, office to his nephew, who was eight years old. And so um, we, have, we have all this nepotism going on. Sale of indulgences, I'm going to get into that in just a little bit, so I'll skip that one. And then the moral decline of the papacy, it was, became well known that, uh, that there was illegitimate children of the Pope and things like that. So this is leading up into the 1500s, or excuse me, the 1600s. There's well-known and well-documented church corruption. Another reason is that there were pre-Reformation reformers, Okay. Now, I want to spend just a couple minutes here and talk about this because this is so important here. And there's two of them that I'm going to highlight here. And there were more, but because of our time, I want to, I want to, I want to highlight John Wycliffe and John Huss. That these two guys, technically, they're not listed or not part of the Reformation because they didn't live in the 1500s. You can see when they lived. They lived in 1330 to 1384 for Wycliffe. And then overlapping slightly, 1372 to 1415 for John Huss. Um, but the impact that these two men had, I, I can honestly say that if it weren't for these two men, the Reformation most likely would not have happened. Okay? So the, the influence of Wycliffe and Huss is enormous. If you go to the city of Geneva, uh, there is a, a really good-looking family that stands in front of a wall, okay? Uh, there's, a, there's a wall there called the Reformation Wall, okay, if you go into the city of Geneva. And on the wall there, there's four, in the middle, there's four main men that stand tall, towering over there. Um, on the left, you have William Farrell. We'll talk about him. 
in the, in the second to the left there is standing the tallest is John Calvin. Then next to him, you have Theodore Beza. We're not going to talk much about him. Basically, the only thing you need to know about him is he succeeded, Beza, uh, su- succeeded Calvin. Um, uh, he was influential in a lot of other areas, though. And then finally on the right there, you have the Scottish reformer, John Knox. Now, all of them had ties to the city of Geneva, and that's the reason why they're in the main center of the Reformation Wall in Geneva. But if you were to look to the left and to the right of that main wall, so if the main wall is up front here, over to the left, you have a post there or a kind of like a monument there with the name Zwingli on it over here. And over here, you have one, actually, no, Luther's over here, and you have Zwingli over here. And we're going to talk about both of those guys. And the reason why that they put those there is because they were emphasizing emphasizing in Geneva, the men of Geneva, who had ties to Geneva, but they were saying that it was built upon these two guys and what they were doing, Luther and, uh, and Zwingli. If you walk around to the side, though, if you come around to the side of one of those, it's the, the Luther side here. I know you can't see it in the picture. I, I, I recognize that. But here we have three names listed here that are carved in the side of Luther, Luther's stone. The middle one is John Wycliffe, and the bottom one is John Huss. Now, the reason why they did this is because they were recognizing, as they were trying to memorialize the Reformation, that without Huss and without Wycliffe, the foundation would crumble. And so the, 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 the contributions that these two men had were... Um, immense. Let me, let me talk just a couple minutes about them before I move on. So we have Wycliffe. He wrote uh, several things there. He wrote um, uh, uh, books called The Truth of the Holy Scriptures. And in that, he's talking about how that the Bible is the only source of Christian doctrine. And that is the, it's the Bible where the believers must test all the teachings of the church, including the early fathers, the papacy, and every ecumenical council. Now, you can understand why this was revolutionary. For Wycliffe to say this in the 1300s, that, that the Bible is our authority. Now, for you and I to hear that, we say, well, of course it is. But you have to understand how radically different of a message that was. Because the authority was not in the Scriptures, and in the Catholic Church today, the authority is still not in the Scriptures. And so for Wycliffe to say, no, 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 the authority, the authority is in the, in the Scriptures, was a groundbreaking book that he wrote called The Truth of the Holy Scriptures. He also wrote a book called On the Church, where he says that the church is not an outward organization controlled by the papacy or the priesthood. He says, but the church is the whole gathering of people. And so it's not about the pope, it's not about the papacy, it's not about the bishops, the priesthood, it's about the people. And the head of the church, Wycliffe wrote in the 1300s, is not the pope, but is Christ. You talk about someone who was willing to stand alone during that time. You see, Luther could stand on the writings of Wycliffe. Wycliffe was one of the first to write it. Courage there. And so one of the things I always want to say is that, you know, sometimes the people who get the most press or have the most or remembered most in history, they're the ones who are simply just continuing the work of someone else. And so you... This is where you and I need to stop a second and remember our place in church history. There's a really good chance that in 50 years from now, in 100 years from now, no one's going to know my name. 
an exercise I often do when I teach students is I say, uh, younger students, teenagers or whatever, I'll say, uh, how many of you can name, give me your dad's first name? And, you know, I'm like, oh, all right. Yeah. Okay, how many of you can, can give me your grandfather's first name? Okay, how, how many of you can give me your great-grandfather's first name? And then now we're starting to get a little like, okay, yeah, a little bit. It's really good, you know, I had one kid in youth group that was like the eighth, okay, you know, so that was easy for him, you know. It's like, all right, you're kind of mo- ruining my illustration here, kid, you know. Go get a drink of water. Anyway, so, but the point is, is that then I say, how many of you can remember your great-great-grandfather's name? And almost no one can ever do that. And my point is this. I said, you can't even remember your own family tree, okay? Or just a few generations back, and that's okay. And so people most likely aren't going to remember you for generations and generations and generations, but you will have an effect on them. Your great-great-grandfather had an effect on you. You may not recognize it. You may not see it, but there's an effect there. And so the same is true in church history is that people may not remember you know, Cade Coper in, you know, 100 years from now. But I'm praying that people will be affected by Cade Coper. And I'm praying that people will be affected by Jeremy Scott. You see, this is our place in church history. You see, we stand on the shoulders of people who have gone before us. Luther was able to do what Luther did, mainly, obviously, by the grace of God. Of course, by the grace of God. But because someone like John Wycliffe ran before him, and plowed that ground up, and he paid dearly for it. And so we have, we have Wycliffe who just contributed quite a bit to this, and he also wrote uh, about the power of the Pope. He argued that the papacy was a human origin, not divine origin, and so he was really going after everything. He even wrote on the Eucharist, and he rejected transubstantiation. Um, And so you can imagine that this was not sitting well, but he died. Uh, Interestingly enough, he still was able to die of a natural cause in 1384, but here's the problem. The church understood, the Catholic church understood that people were reading his writings and that they were saying that this was a pride, that and they didn't like that pushback, obviously, because he was teaching the truths in the scriptures. And so what they did was, is that they went to his grave and they dug up his body and they burned it and they threw it in the river. 34 years after he died. Okay, so I mean, you, know, you can't, you can't, you can't, you know, fault them for like moving too hastily on the thing. Okay, but they they just did that because they wanted everyone to recognize we are seeing this man as a heretic, and it doesn't matter that he's already dead. If you, here's the message they were saying: if you embrace this, the same is going to happen to you. This is one of the reasons why Wycliffe is called the Morning Star of the Reformation. He was that first star that made the Reformation possible. John Huss was another person. Um, he was a Bohemian reformer, which is known as Czech Republic today. Uh, this is where he was at. He was greatly influenced by Wycliffe's writings. Um, he attacked indulgences. Um, he said only God could forgive. Um, and like I said, I'll get into the indulgence thing in just a little bit here. Um, and uh, he said Christ alone was the head of the church, not the post, very similar to Wycliffe. Um, he said this, though, he, he, he went as far as to say that popes, that it was possible for the popes and that they did commit sin, okay? So he, he wrote about that. That was well-received, I'm sure. Um, preaching 
is he said is the true heart of ordained ministry, not celebrating the sacraments. Um, so what happened is, is Pope the 23rd excommunicated Huss and threatened to put uh, uh, Prague, because this is where Huss was, Huss was in the city of Prague, under what's called uh, an interdict. An interdict is uh, a, 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 um, a power that the, the Pope can put upon a city where that the priest can uh, uh, perform no f- spiritual function at all except for um, uh, funerals. Um, I think there's one other thing. Um, so funerals and baptisms uh, for the dying. Those are the only two things. So that people were basically uh, had their spiritual um, uh, their spiritual ministries removed from them. And, and let me just stop and say here that this is hard for us to understand, okay, given, given our, our culture. But in this culture, church and state together, okay? I mean, just this together. So, so when, when the church says it's not going to be involved, that was a major deal, okay? So if that happened today, like if, you know, our government said, well, you know, you know the, the church has got no authority and whatever, like, yeah, I knew that. But, but here, this was a big deal. So this interdict of Pope the 23rd put under on, on Prague, that made it so that the city's function in state and on the religious level came to a, a halt. And I mean, it had economic uh, uh, impact. It had uh, a tremendous societal impact. And so it was a major deal. So to save the city, Huss leaves. Huss leaves the city and he leaves Prague. And he was told to come to a council, the Council of Constance in 1415. Huss, and this is very important to remember because this, this, this historical event is going to come back later on, about 100 years. Huss was promised that he was going to have safe passage to this council. So he goes, but as soon as he arrives, he's captured and thrown into a prison cell for six months. Horrific prison cell. Any historical book you read on this, that's the thing that they talk about often of how terrible of conditions Huss had to endure for six months simply because he was preaching the gospel simply because he was teaching that the Bible is the authority. Because that, that, that the Pope is not the head of the church, that Christ is the head of the church. Every one of these statements that I've just said, that you and I would say that we could walk out into the street and that we could just talk about freely here and that we could have conversation with, it landed Huss in prison for six months. It was a terrible, terrible circumstance. You see, we stand on the shoulders of these men. I mean, this was the conversations that were, what were happening, and this is the things that he dared to even write about here. And so these pre-Reformation reformers had great impact. June 5th, 1415, Huss stands. Finally, he goes before the council. He's convinced that he will not receive a fair hearing, so he says this, and I quote, I appeal to Jesus Christ, the only judge who is almighty and completely just. In his hands I place my cause, since he will judge each, not on the base of false witnesses and erring counsels, but on truth and justice. Man, that guy had courage. So they wait a month, put him back in prison for another month. Then they bring him out before everyone, publicly. They strip him of his priestly garments. They shave his head. They make a paper crown that has demons on it, and they put it on his head, and they kill him. And this is what he said. I shall die today with joy in the faith of the gospel that I have preached. Man, I, I don't know how you can, 
You can read or hear stories of this, and that's just be moved. This is the heritage that we have. These are the people that went on before us. And, and so that baton that I talked about that you have in your hand right now, John Huss held that baton. John Wycliffe held that baton. And so when you're running now, you're running for the cause of Jesus Christ first and foremost, of course, but you're also running in the same lane that these guys ran, and they're cheering you on saying, go. I ran my time. Now it's your time. You see, this is, this is what it means. If you, when you have a purpose in life, when you know for sure of why you're put on this earth, you know that you are here to serve Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone because he gave everything for you so that you could have eternal life. Then it doesn't matter what men can do to you. It doesn't matter because this world is just a stopping point. This world is just so temporary. And that's what Wycliffe and that's what us understood is they understood that this is just, this is just temporary. This is just fading away. And so if you take it from me, I die with joy because I go to something far better. It's beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. There's other causes of the Reformation I want to talk a little bit about here before we get into Luther. And what's known as Renaissance humanism, this is not the type of humanism that you're going to think of. And if I say the word humanism today, you're going to think of something completely different than what Renaissance humanism is. Um, humanism today is you know, this idea of, of, of the worship of man. Uh, let me just uh, oversimplify it by saying that. But this believed, uh, this was a belief that the secular was just important as the sacred, okay? And so these are people who would devote themselves to the humanities, the arts, and things like that, okay? And so that they believed that, that that had just as much of importance of conveying a Christian worldview as like the sacraments and things like that. Now, it wouldn't have the same authority, but it had the same importance of, in terms of, of what we should be doing. So this was a, a new thinking that was going around uh, during this time in the late 1400s. Uh, uh, yeah, in the late 1400s. Um, most Renaissance humanists were committed to what we would call a Christian worldview. Um, these humanists were open to thinking for the first time in many years, okay? And so they began to ask questions such as, you know, what if the tradition is wrong? Now you understand, that question had never been asked before. The question had never been raised before. Like, what if tradition, the tradition of the church, what if that's wrong? Because what that does by asking that question, what you're doing there is that you are saying that you don't think tradition has authority. You see, open thought, open discussion had been, had been uh, uh, squashed by the church. The Middle Ages was full of the Catholic Church fighting for power and shutting down thought and discussion. Now, I bring up this idea because I could have easily skipped this, but there's a person who was a humanist that you have to know his name. You absolutely, if you're going to study church history, Reformation history, you have to know this guy's name, and that is Erasmus. Erasmus, he wrote 226 works, prolific writer. As you can see, 2.5 million copies were in circulation there. Um, he was known as the schoolmaster of Europe. Brilliant man. Absolutely brilliant man. Every, refor every reformer that you're going to read about, that I'm going to talk about, and the ones that you would read about, goes back to Erasmus in some way. You, you can, in every biography that you'll read about Calvin or, or Zwingli or Knox or, or Luther or any of these guys, you're going to see how that this man in his writings had influenced him. Now, 
Maybe some of you would have recognized the name Erasmus before walking into this class today. Maybe some of you didn't. The point is, is that there's a lot of people here that God uses for his glory. Name recognition is not the criteria of whether or not God is using you for ministry, okay? And that's the thing I want to keep coming back to here. So it doesn't matter if people remember you. It doesn't matter if people know your name. It matters how we're running this race in this chapter, this leg of the race, if you will. So we have Erasmus here who was just a genius. He used his intellect uh, and God used it for, for his plan. Um, there's a couple books that are, are listed there. Um, the Dagger of the Christian Soldier. You can, you can research all these and read these. If you're going to read anyone by Erasmus, I would su- suggest that Julius ex- uh, Excluded from Heaven. Uh, it's talking about, it's a story, he used s- uh, satire and humor uh, of he painted the picture of when the Pope gets to heaven and Peter won't let him in, okay? <laughs> and so the Pope's like, what are you talking about? I'm the Pope. And so there's this interesting humor back and forth that Erasmus writes about in the story of the Pope not being allowed into heaven. And so if you're going to read anything by Erasmus, uh, that would be good. There's, there's English translations obviously available. Probably the most impactful, though, writing of his was the scholarly edition of the, New, the Greek New Testament with a Latin translation and his own notes. That, by far, influenced more people. Because what he wanted is he wanted the scriptures available to everybody. Okay? He wanted everyone to know the scriptures. And he wanted it to be accessible to everyone. Um, he said this, I want even the lowliest women to read the Gospels. Sorry, women, it's just a a thing of his time, okay? So I want even the lowliest women to read the Gospels and letters of St. Paul. I want them to be translated into all languages so they can be read and understood by Scots and Irishmen, by Turks and Muslims. To make people understand what Christianity teaches is surely the first step to converting them. Perhaps many will mock the Scriptures, but some will take them to heart. I greatly desire that the farm worker should sing parts of Scripture to himself as he follows his plow, that the weavers should hum them to the tune of his shuttle, that the traveler should banish the boredom of his journey by reading Bible stories. Let the conversations of all Christians flow from Scripture, for our everyday conversations generally reveal what we are. Let that sink in. For generally, our everyday conversations reveal what we are. How much scripture soaks your mind every day? The conversations that we have, are they informed by scripture? I'm not saying that we've got to be constantly quoting scripture to one another. But what I'm saying is that the conversations that we have with each other, they should be influenced by what we know of the Bible to be true about. How we treat each other should be informed by the scriptures. What is important to us, what, what, what gets us anxious, okay? Think about all these things of our daily life. Erasmus says, I want everyone to know the scriptures. And so he, he worked hard on this translation. He was brilliant. He was a great mind. But he didn't just want to keep that in to the elite. He didn't want to keep that into the, the halls of academia. He wanted everybody to know the scriptures. And so right now, if I say, turn in your Bibles to 
whatever passage of Scripture, you have many choices. You have a printed copy right in front of you and the seat's there. Most of you could pull out a phone or a tablet and you could have how many translations instantly available to you? Instantly. Erasmus and the people who lived during this time and the pre-Reformation time, they did not have this. In fact, most people, they didn't have a Bible in their language at this time. If they knew how to read even. And so these things that we take for granted every day, we have been given to us by people like Erasmus. And God gets the glory, right? Okay, We understand that God alone gets the glory for this. But he uses human instruments to do this. And his passion was that people know the Scriptures and the truths of the Scriptures. So here's the obvious question. What's your passion? How important is it to you that other people know and have access to the Scriptures. Hey, you know, for, for, for our children, for those of us who are parents, how, how much of a priority is it that, that they know the Bible? That, 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 we, that we, we live out the Gospel to them, we live out the realities of the Gospel, the realities of the Scriptures to them, that we say that this is something that you should know. And, and this goes back to Judaism, right? And remember the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6. It says that, that the Lord is one. We talked about this last week. The Lord is one. And he says, what did he say? He says, you know, go where Moses is writing about this. He says, it should be when you walk about. It should be when you sit up, when you rise. It should be on the forehead. It should be around your hand. It should be everyday life. This is Erasmus. That's all he's doing. Erasmus didn't create this. He was doing the plan of God all along. And so it's our turn to run. It's our turn to make sure that the people around us know the scriptures. And so it's a beautiful quote there by Erasmus. Now, Erasmus is so important that this quote is often, you'll see this sometimes in different uh, church history books, is this here, Erasmus laid the egg and Luther hatched it. Okay, Erasmus was the one that put the egg down, and Luther was the one that got to see it come to flourishing. Again, I go back to this. You may be discouraged by the lack of fruit for the time of ministry that you're trying to impact other people. You may be discouraged by the, by the years of work that you have poured into people or, or you've tried, or maybe even with your children, and, and you, you've tried to give them the Scriptures, but they just don't seem to be interested in it. Just lay the egg and pray God says someone else to hatch it. Okay? Just lay the egg and pray that someone else comes and hatches it. You see, it's not up to you and me to bring the fruit. Our job is simply to live out the gospel and to teach it to other people. I can't tell you how many parents I've talked to that they wondered if their kids were going to follow Christ, and man, those teen years were rough, and man, those college years were rough, and even into the early 20s and 30s, they were wondering if their kids were going to embrace the faith, and then God does a work of grace in their life, much later than everyone would have wanted, but he does the work of grace, and they follow Christ. I can't promise you that's what's going to happen, but what I can say is that it's not always up to us. And God does not always have for me or for you to be the one to pull the fruit from the tree. Maybe someone else is doing that. And we can glorify God in that. And we will get part of the glory in heaven. We will get part of the reward in heaven. 
But it's not always, we're not always the one that's going to see. So Erasmus, he got to see a lot of the Reformation, but he didn't get to see the final reach of his ministry. And you and I won't see the final reach of our ministries either. God called, he does it by design. So be faithful. Just be faithful. That's what keeps us going, is understanding that God's in control of this. I need to share one other um, cause of the Reformation that I, I just can't go without mentioning this, and then we'll introduce Luther for a few minutes. And that is the invention of the movable type printing press. That was huge. Again, how God uses technology to, and it's, it's funny for us to refer to a movable type printing press as technology, right? You know, But it was, right? Okay. That was revolutionary. Because so for the first time, mass production could be done very fast. I mean, they had printing presses then, but they were dies that had to be cast. They were dies that had to be either wooden dies that had to be carved or metal dies that had to be made. And then it was a very long and a very expensive process to do that. Now with the movable type printing press, that they could move things or what would take years suddenly took weeks to do. Okay, And so this is going to be one of the main reasons why Luther's thesis that he posts to the church door in Wittenberg gets so much traction is because some of his students, they take it and they think, we're on to something here. And without Luther's permission, they take those 95 theses and they go to a printing press and it just goes all over the place. We're going to see in the English Reformation, we're going to see in the Scottish Reformation, we're going to see in the uh, Swiss Reformation, even reaching into what's known as the Radical Reformation, we're going to see how that what they were influenced by was that they had documents now. They had writings that they could read. For the first time in history, they had libraries that as thought was coming out, it could be mass produced and given out to the masses for the people, the common people to read. Because before, the only ones who could afford books, the only one who could afford printing, obviously, was the wealthy and the elite. And so they were the ones that had the power in the church. And so there was, there was a, a cap on who knew what and who was able to discuss what. And so for the first time, someone could make something go viral, <laughs> All right, because of this printing press. And so again, I just love to take a second and just see how God doesn't just ha- make things happen out of a vacuum unless it's ex nihilo creation week, okay? What he does, though, is he, he, he uses all sorts of things, you know, to, 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 to make it so that it was, to, to make his plan uh, come into, uh, to, to, to pass. So... We have to start, if we're going to start talking about people, that gives us kind of a running start. We only have a few minutes, and I'm on track here with what I, what I thought we'd cover today, so we're okay. Um, I just want to introduce Luther today, and then next week we'll talk more about him, okay? So the German Reformation, you have to understand there wasn't just one Reformation. There was many Reformations that had happened. I just mentioned a few just a second ago, the English Reformation, the Swiss Reformation. Uh, there was, uh, and we're not going to get into the Reformation in Holland. Um, the, there was a radical Reformation. We may get into that, not sure yet. Um, but there were these, a lot of things that were happening. Some of them overlapped, some of them didn't. Um, there was just a lot of moving parts. There was a Scottish Reformation, of course. And so this is, there's just lots of things happening, but it started in Germany. It started in Germany with the German Reformation with a man, as you and I recognize, Martin Luther. One of the things that people talk about Luther is how ugly he was, and I concur. Um, 
He was the uh, son of a copper miner. Um, and again, there's a new book out. There's a newer book out. Uh, Eric McTaxis, his book on uh, Luther. Has anyone read that? I know you're reading it. Okay, you've read it. Okay, you've read it. Okay. Does anyone have it and has not read it yet? Okay, all right, okay, okay. McTaxis, he, he's, he's really pulling a lot of information from latest um, archaeological evidence. I'm still sifting through that. Okay, now I, I know he's a great uh, researcher and things like that, but the, the first little bit that I've read of it, um, I'm just wondering if he's putting a little bit too much emphasis on some things, but, um, and he's trying to get a bestseller in some ways. Now, I respect Metaxas. I, I, I've read his book on Bonhoeffer, read his Seven Men book. I mean, I respect him a lot, but sometimes you, you need to have something new in order to be a bestseller, and I'm just wondering. So I'm not, I'm not saying don't listen to him or don't believe him. I'm just saying that, um, you know, some of the things that he, he pushes back on what historically we've understood to be true of Luther, um, I'm still researching in that. So if I say something, you're like, well, Metaxas doesn't say that. I'm like, yeah, I know, I know, go away. So, <laughs> right? Um, but uh, um, but the, the issue is, is that there's, there's a lot we can learn from Luther, and Metaxas is good, you know, to, to write about that. So I just wanted you to be aware of that. I didn't know how popular that book was. So, son of a copper miner, um, he entered the university at 18 years old to study to become a lawyer, uh, following his dad's wishes. His dad actually became um, a wealthy, fairly wealthy, uh, kind of made it in the, in the mining business. Um, he, and when I say he was a miner, it doesn't necessarily meant that he was in the mines. He was just in that business. Um, he graduates early and decides to continue his education. And so at 22 years old, he uh, suddenly takes some religious vows, becomes an Augustinian friar, and he started the study uh, to start it, to start it to study theology. Now the story behind that is uh, some of you know this. Uh, he was walking and uh, traveling uh, by foot and got caught in a thunderstorm. Terrible thunderstorm came up. And so lightning all around him, going around him. And so uh, to find refuge, he runs by a tree and he prays out, uh, he prays out to St. Anne. And he says, St. Anne, save me. And uh, he says, basically, and I'm paraphrasing here, if you save me from this, if, if I'm saved from this, I will become a monk. Okay, and so it was like this barter that he made, this this deal he made with God that if I don't die right now, I'm going to change my course and I'm going to become a monk. And so obviously he survives the thunderstorm, and if nothing else, he's a man of his word because he could have become a Dominican friar. So he said, no, no, he went Augustinian, which is the really strict ones. And so he went Augustinian, and his dad. Did not like this a lot. This is where Metaxas and I disagree a little bit, but he really had uh, uh, an argument and just said basically he he, he pushed against um, he pushed against Luther in, in saying, "Well, the Bible says you're supposed to honor your father, right? So you can't become a, a monk. Why are you becoming a monk?" You need to take on the family business here. I've, I've made this business. I've made it successful. I've, I've, I've brought it to where our family is comfortable now, and I want to pass this along to you. He had two brothers. He had two sons. So Luther had two brothers that had died of the plague. And so he says, look, you've got to carry the son. And Luther says, I gave my word. I'm going to become a monk. Now, again, there's something we can learn from that. 
I mean, you, how many of us have made a promise to God at one point in our lives, right? Get me out of this jam and I will, you know, I remember as a kid doing that. Um, you know, I'm not saying those are the wisest, you know, um, promises to make. And I'm not saying that God always holds us to those. But what I am saying is that we need to be very cautious about whatever we do tell God that we will do, that we do in our best by his strength to do. We can't take it very lightly if we say that we're going to do something for God or because God has saved us. We can't take that lightly. That's got to be something that's got to be life-changing. And for Luther, that was life-changing. And he gives up the career and he becomes a monk and he goes and begins to study and, and it was... Um, it was an interesting life. He was an extremist. Um, Luther's personality was whatever he did. He did it 115%. Um, he um, uh, would uh, confess sins. Uh, his confessionals would last hours. Uh, he would be uh, he would involved in uh, self-beating um, to to f- make himself penitent for the sins that, that he felt he had in his life. He would go out and sleep in the snow at times uh, to show how serious he was about mortifying the flesh or, or of, of putting aside the sinful corruption of the body. It, it was so much that the, the other monks felt he was suicidal and were very concerned for his health. I mean, he was all in on this, but he was tormented in his soul absolutely tormented. I, I mentioned his confessions, and, and he would go for hours and hours uh, to confess. Uh, but during this time, he became recognized as an outstanding scholar and a preacher. Um, he was ordained to the priesthood in uh, 1507, and in 1508 became a junior lecturer at the new University of Wittenberg. Okay, now this is important because the Prince Frederick the Wise of Saxony founded this just a few years earlier in Wittenberg. And that city is going to become very important here in just a second here. And so we had this, uh, he was ordained to the priesthood and he became a, a scholar, a preacher. But a man by the name of Johannes von Stoutpitz took Luther under his wing and became Luther's confessor. Okay. And now if you read about this, you'll read that he would go to Stoutpitz and he would, Luther would go to him and he would be talking to him and he would be confessing sin for long periods of time and then he would go away and then he would come back immediately and go away. And sometimes this would last six, seven, eight hours of confessing of sin, of every little thing that he could possibly think of. And you can imagine how Stoutpitz was getting a little exasperated by this, right? I mean, this guy, I mean, he, he He's listening to all these sins that he's like, I don't even know this is a sin or, or, or all these type of things that are going on. But Luther had just such devotion and such desire that he wanted to be known as a follower of, uh, of God that he was trying to be, be serious about this. But the problem was in Stoutpitz, he recognized it right away. He recognized it after a while. And that was as he said this to Luther. He says, look, God is not angry with you. You're angry with God. 
He says, you're trying to, to you know, it's all out of anger towards God that you're going after this and you're saying, why have you made me do this? And, and, and why is it that, that you have made it so that this is an impossible task? Why is it that you've asked me to be righteous, but I can't be righteous? Why is it that you've asked me to be holy and I can't be holy? Why is it you've told me not to sin, God, but yet that's all I can do is sin and I got to go and I confess this and confess this and then I walk away and then I'm filled with proud, a proud thought or I walk away and I'm angry again. And so Stoppitz looks at him and says, look, God's not angry at you, Luther. He says, you're angry with God here. And that was a moment that changed Luther's life. Later on, Luther said this to Stoppitz. He says, he was my first father in the teaching, and he gave birth to me in Christ. If Stoutpitz had not helped me, I would have been swallowed up in hell and left there. Now, before today, how many of you knew of the name Stoutpitz? <laughs> Just a few of you, right? Okay. One person sat through this before, so he doesn't count. Okay. <laughs> right? But I mean, some other people, you've read this, and said, but most of us didn't know this, right? And that's, and that's to be expected, and, that, and that, that's okay. But the point is, again, God uses all people for his glory and for his honor, and that's the message we need to keep coming back to. So Luther looked at this guy and said that this was a turning point, and he started to understand things. And so uh, Staupitz, what he decides to do is he makes Luther, and this was actually um, uh, somewhat of a risk, but he makes Luther a lecturer at this new university in um, a, a main lecture, not just a junior lecture, um, at this new university. Um, and this is where, for the first time, Luther begins to read the Bible for himself. Because you've got to remember, being a junior lecturer, all he was doing was taking homilies and taking things from other people and simply regurgitating them. He did not have access to the Scriptures for himself because he was a junior lecturer. Now that Stalpit said, you know, there's something about this guy. He's erratic. There's something about this guy that he doesn't quite get it, but we're going to make him a senior lecturer and we're going to give him the Bible. We're going to give him access to the Bible. Now, this radically changes him. The first book he begins to teach is the book of Psalms. He does that in 1513. Uh, or I had it up there. And then in 1515, he begins to lecture on Romans. So in 1515, if you're, if you're following the, 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 the course here, you know that in just a couple years, he's going to be nailing those theses to the church door. And it was because he began to study the book of Romans. Take your Bible and go to Romans 1 real quick. And then I'm going to land the plane here in just a second. And then we'll begin by picking up next week by talking about Luther and the, the theses that he posed. So Romans 1. All right. Verse 16 says, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. Verse 17, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, this text is what God used to, 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 to bring Luther to the point of becoming the reformer that he was. 
According to this text, the gospel is the revelation of the righteous, the righteousness, the justice of God. But see, this was precisely Luther's problem. Because the justice of God, it's, it was, that's what Luther found unbearable. And so he said, how could this message be such good news? Because, you see, he was taught that the justice of God referred to the punishment of sinners. Okay, so he says, how can the punishment of sinners, how can the wrath of God, how can that be good news? He found this idea that God was going to judge him for his sins, the most unbearable thing that he could think of. And so this is the reason why his soul was in torment the entire time. This is the reason why he was sleeping in the snow. This is the reason why he confessed for six, seven, eight hours. It's because he knew that God was going to just, uh, judge him according to this text, at least as he was believing, as he was interpreting. And he says, how can this be good news to me, and his soul was in torments. But as he began to study, he began to realize that the justice of God does not refer to the punishment of sinners. Rather, it means that the justice or the righteousness of the righteous is not their own, but God's. And so the righteousness that you and I have, the righteousness that is required for us to have eternal life, is not our own, it's Jesus's. And once Luther understood that, once he understood, wait a minute here, this is talking about that the righteousness that I can have has been given to me by Jesus. No longer was he angry. No longer was his soul in torment. In fact, for the first time, he did see it as indeed good news. And so this text of Scripture is what God used to change Luther. The righteousness of God is that which is given to those who live by faith. He said this. He said, I felt that I had been born anew, and the gates of heaven had been opened. The whole of Scripture gained a new meaning, and from that point on, the phrase, the justice of God, no longer filled me with hatred, but rather became unspeakably sweet by virtue of a great love. He understood the gospel. And we need to stop there today, but I'll just say this, is that we need to understand the gospel like he did. Is the gospel sweet to you? Does it fill your soul with joy that there can be a righteousness that you could never have, you could never do, you could never live, but yet it's given to you by Jesus if we respond to him in faith and we repent of our sins and ask him to give it to us. He will give us the righteousness that was Christ. That is cause for joy. And that is cause for a life that can now be lived freely. And no longer trying to earn favor. No longer trying to earn God's blessing. No longer trying to earn God's smile. But rather, we know that we have God's smile if we're covered in Christ's righteousness. Beautiful text of scripture that God used to change him. Next week, we're going to get into this idea of these theses that he does nail to the, the door. And why does he do that? And this idea of indulgences, what was so significant about that? And so we'll continue the life of Luther next week when we gather together. Let's pray. Father, our time is gone, and I pray that this would have been helpful. I pray that we would run the race well. I pray that we would, be, we would recognize the fact that we are just a part of church history, that there are people that have gone on before, and there's people coming after us. And our responsibility is to run for you now. And I pray that we do that. I pray that we have joy in the gospel this morning. I pray that we would leave the fruit to you, knowing that you're doing what you're doing in your timetable, and we simply just need to be faithful and run faithfully. 
So please encourage us from these people from history. They weren't perfect, but neither are we. And I pray that that would be encouraging to us. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen.